0: So the title of today's message is "Stay in the Tent." We're going to be in Exodus chapter thirty-three. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you forgot your Bible or you don't have one on your phone, just flip your bulletin over, and that scripture will be there also. In my early days of being a Christian, uh, most of you know, I worked in an electronics factory, and I would, uh, you know, normal, pretty much. Uh, I think it was like six to two thirty, three thirty, depending on if we were on overtime, and I'd be sitting there on the assembly line and. One morning before work, Tammy and I were arguing. I know it's hard to believe that we would ever argue, but (laughs) occasionally it would happen. She got home um, from work after closing the restaurant that she managed, and we were fighting, and it was probably over something really stupid. I'm a guy. I was probably being stupid. You know, it's I'm a guy. And I left for work angry. And at that time I was getting a ride to work from a co-worker because we didn't have a car and I lived about eight miles away from my job and I was sitting on the assembly line and I was sitting there fuming about what we were fighting about. And I'm sitting there, I don't know if you're like me, but you know, after an argument or after you get into it with someone, you sit there and replay it over and over and over again in your mind, you go, oh I should have said that, or oh, I should have said this. And you know, I, I should have made my point like that. And I don't know, you know, I don't know who she is. She's driving me crazy about this. And it just kept playing over and over and over again in my mind. And I kept he- feeling God knocking on the door of my heart, but I kept kind of pushing it pushing it aside and ignoring it. And I just kept letting that anger just build and, and fuel just a rage in my heart about it. Until finally my boss came over and looked at me and said, man, what is wrong with you? You look like you want to kill somebody over here. It's like you just you just have this dark cloud over the top of you. And I just kind of blew him off and said, I don't want to talk about it. But that insistent knocking of Jesus on the door of my heart just kept getting louder and harder. And actually, it was starting to get quite irritating. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you're doing something wrong or you're having some wrong thoughts and Jesus is sitting there going. And then all of a sudden, it's like. And then it's like, bam, 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 bam. That's kind of what it was happening in my, in my spirit. And as I kept trying to ignore the prompting of the Lord, I felt almost this suffocating weight descending upon me. Much like what people have when they describe an anxiety attack with me. But I've never really suffered anxiety. I mean, after all, I'm German. I'm Norwegian. We really don't feel fear. I'm just kidding. We do. Tammy will say, well, you don't feel anything usually. but <laughs> But as this weight kept pressing on me, that job on the line ended, and there was a parts delay for a couple hours until the next job was going to come up. And there was nothing much else for us to do, so we had the very rare occurrence of us being able to go home early if we wanted to. The problem was, is I didn't have a ride. My ride was on another line, and they were still going to be going for a few hours. And so I was kind of stuck there. And so I just felt prompted to walk home. Eight miles in January. Yeah, that's like walking from here to Pigeon Falls. And half of that walk would be out in the county. And The quickest way home would actually be to walk along the railroad tracks. And the railroad tracks kind of cut right through the middle of Kenosha, just within a couple blocks of the apartment that we had. So I'm walking out in the, count, in the county along the railroad tracks, and it's just quiet. And I remembered it was the best thing that could have happened to me at that time. Getting alone, quiet, and away from the noise of life. This was before cell phones. This was before I could pull out my phone and Facebook all the way home about how mad I was at Tammy or anything like that. I was completely alone, completely cut off from the noise, and I started to be able to hear God's voice again. I was able to humble myself before Him and turn from my stubbornness. And I've always remembered that time, and, I've tried, and I learned a lesson from it, to try to do the same thing now. When I start getting overwhelmed, when I start, the noise of life just starts getting deafening, the demands get too heavy, and that, that everything just seems insurmountable before me, I go away. I go for a walk in the woods. I go for a drive. You can ask Tammy. I do this quite a bit, actually. And I go and get alone by myself so I can quiet my spirit and hear from God. There are tons of scriptural examples from this in the Bible. And we're going to look at one of them. Other ones you can see David. David would go out into the wilderness to hear from God. John the Baptist grew up in the wilderness doing nothing but hearing from God. Frequently Jesus would go off by himself and pray to get away from the noise of life. But Moses is one of the ones that first models us for us in the Bible. Let's look at Exodus 33 starting in verse 7. Now, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke. With Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young age, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. And Father God, I ask, Lord, that you just take this incident from almost 4,000 years ago and use it to teach us today in the 21st century about the importance of getting alone with you. About the importance of shutting off the incredible amount of noise that we live with today. So, Father God, I ask, Lord, that you just take this example and use it to tell us the importance of alone time with you. And I ask this in your name. Amen. So what can we learn here about what Moses was doing, about setting up a tent for his own personal prayer use? And this was before the tabernacle was built. So he was setting up, in in essence, his own tabernacle. And one of the first things we find out and we read about the tent of meeting is that it was very, very deliberate what he did. Now think of Moses' situation. He's at least 85 years old at this time. But he has the best access to God that anyone up until that point could ever have. I mean, all he had to do was take a short walk up a mountain and the tangible, awful, terrible presence of God was right there in front of him. In fact, that presence was so powerful that it was able to sustain him for 40 days and 40 nights without food and water. It didn't say he hiked up there with food and water, but that he stayed in the presence of God for that long, and that supernatural presence of God sustained him. However, he had a problem with going up onto the mountain. Moses is the leader of about 6 million people people at this point in his life if you count all the men all the women all the children and all the censuses it came out to about six million people six million former slaves to be exact now why is that important because you have people who have been slaves for generations they have no clue about how to take care of themselves in the desert they have no clue even really how to think for themselves they haven't been allowed to They've had slave masters telling them what to do day after day, and not only them, but their parents, and their parents' parents for at least eight generations. They have had this mentality. And when we say that they were the children of Israel, it's a very accurate description from the youngest to the oldest of their mindset. That that slave mentality made their decision-making capability to the level of children. And like small children, they had no capacity to make good decisions. Everything was based of how they felt in the moment or who the loudest voice in the crowd was. In essence, Moses was a parent of six million toddler children. And like toddler children, Moses could not leave them alone without them getting into trouble. Anybody who is a parent or has ever watched a toddler child know you cannot leave them alone. Because they will get in to something. In their case, the children of Israel, every time he walks up on the mountain, they descend into complete anarchy. The last time he went up there, they made a golden calf, started worshipping it, and just descended into this complete chaos and turned their back on God. And got God so mad that he said he wanted to wipe them all out and start over again with Moses and his family. And Moses was wise enough to know that he needed God, he needed time away from God or time away with God, but he couldn't go too far away from the camp or stay too long. So he came up with this solution: the tent of meeting. So what do we learn from this? What we learn from this is that you will never find your strength with in God if it is not a deliberate and first priority in your life. And this is a struggle that we all have, isn't it? It's a struggle that all humanity has had throughout history. Today, the typical American Christianity views your spirituality as an a la carte menu. Pick whatever you want or whatever makes you feel comfortable and forget about the rest, right? That's kind of the way American Christianity is. It's like we're walking through a spiritual lunch line with our tray and making some selections. It's like, okay, God, I'm going to take some of the the blessing from over here. And, oh, wow, look at all that forgiveness. I'm going to pile that on my plate. I need all the forgiveness I can get. Or, or, you know, maybe there's some good stories over here in that sermon or anecdotes that I'll take and I'll, I'll pile that on. And they get to the obedience part and they're like, oh, don't want none of that. That's like cauliflower, asparagus, or something. I don't want none of that. And then they kind of breeze past to check the cashier and say, "Well, Jesus paid it all, thanks." But that's not the kind of Jesus that, or excuse me, the kind of um, Christianity that Jesus prescribed. I mean, if anything, Christianity means of Christ, so he would be the expert about his own religion, isn't it? And there are dozens of statements that Jesus made that should make us cringe a little bit. If Jesus was one of the teachers in your high school, you'd never want to take his class because he was a pretty tough grader. He took just two of the Ten Commandments in the book of Matthew and really told you exactly what they meant. It wasn't just enough that you don't commit adultery. You can't even look upon a woman with lust in your heart. It's not enough that you can't murder. You can't even hate somebody without cause or even really with cause. You are to pray for them and forgive them. And that's just two of his clarifications of the Ten Commandments. What did Jesus say about following him? Listen to this. This sounds like something from The Walking Dead. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Talking about communion that we just celebrated. He also said, if any one of you want to be my follower, you must stop thinking about yourself and what you want. You must be willing to carry the cross that is given you for following me. Jesus doesn't expect that much from us. Just everything. Because he gave it all. So he wants us to follow in his footsteps. Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else you desire for him will be given to you as well. This is illustrated by a discussion on a farm between a chicken and a pig. They're talking about human breakfast once. And the chicken was complaining about how hard she had to work. How she had to keep producing more and more and more eggs as as the farmer's family grew. And how sore her backside was from laying all these eggs and just how hard her life was and and everything. And the pig looked up at her kind of sideways and goes, do you understand what i got to give up? But that's Christianity as prescribed by Jesus. That's what he died for. It's everything in life. It has to be our priority. And the first way it's shown is on our devotional life. The time that we take away with God to spend time with Him in prayer and reading the Bible. It has to be our number one priority. Particularly in these last days if we're going to survive in our faith. We need to be very deliberate about it. Because I'll tell you what. Life, the modern life, our own tendency towards spiritual apathy, and a very real devil will do everything they can to make sure we don't make it a priority. We have to be deliberate about it. And once we make that our number one priority, we have to make sure that we guard that priority. That's what I want to talk about next is how we guard it. Oswald Chambers is the author of one of the most famous devotionals in history called My Utmost or His Highest. Anybody here read that? It's, it's an awesome devotional. I strongly, strongly recommend you go out and buy a copy. It's very cheap on Amazon. I'd even be willing to buy you a copy. That's how um, much I hold this, uh, this book up. And its devotional shaped my Christianity. It's less than five minutes a day, but it's incredibly deep. Oswald Chambers said this in one of his daily devotionals. An unguarded strength is a double weakness. Now what does that mean? Imagine that there is a mountain out there and there's a city built on top of the mountain and around the city is a brick wall, as a giant wall. It's huge, it's thick, it's high, it's just about impenetrable. And one of the sides of this wall exists on a thousand foot sheer mountainside. No one has ever been able to climb up that mountainside because it's just that sheer. There's no handholds, no nothing. Nobody can get up it, so they never, ever put a guard on that side of the wall. It's just not needed. They only have the guards on the side where the road is. Until an enemy comes that's used to scaling walls. And that enemy sends some of their special forces up there, a team, and they scale that wall. They get over the top of the wall. They sneak in. They kill the gate guards. Throw open the gates and the entire enemy army is able to get inside. An unguarded strength is a double weakness. And that is why you need to guard your time away from God. Not only be deliberate, but to guard that time away from God. You see, the devil has all kinds of expert soldiers available to him. He has a spiritual equivalent of the Green Berets or the Army Rangers. Navy SEALs, Marine Force Recon, and I guess the Air Force even has something, don't they, James? Special Operations. They are experts in probing defenses and finding ways into your heart. And once they find a way in, they're going to open the gates of your heart so other, some more of their friends are going to be able to get in. And that's why we need to guard this time. And Moses understood it, and he put his most trusted aide in charge of guarding his tent. Moses didn't want anything else to enter into it unless it was approved because he treasured that tangible presence of God so much in his life. And we need to make that kind of effort to be deliberate and guard that time with God. And if you do that, something supernatural and wonderful will happen. God himself will start helping you guard that time. It says right here in the scripture we read that a pillar of fire would come down and stay at the entrance. God was guarding Moses and guarding that time. Imagine, God wants to spend that kind of time with you. So much so, he sent that supernatural guard in Moses' life to protect that time. And think for a moment that the creator, sustainer, ruler of the entire universe wants to spend one-on-one time with you. What an honor. What a privilege that is. And what what a tragedy that we don't take advantage of it more often. But that's the very intimate nature of our God. That's the heart of Jesus. That he gave his own life so that we can experience God in all of that fullness. There's another thing that Moses' tent of meeting teaches us. And that is that he knew intimacy with God. This was not just a dull religious exercise to Moses. This was his life. Time alone with God isn't supposed to be a dull repetitious punching of a spiritual time clock just to make you feel like you're okay with God. It's meant to be your very life strength, your very life blood, and what gives you peace to handle everything that life can throw at you. That's why everything in life revolves around our time of prayer with Him. If you're having a good day, pray. If you're having a bad day, pray. If the sun is shining, the weather's perfect, the birds are chirping, everything in your life is going great, pray. If you're in the middle of an ice storm, rode over in a ditch, pitch, far, pitch dark, and your cell phone has died, you should definitely pray. This is all about our prayer life. Moses shows us what it can and what it should look like. He got to dwell in the very tangible presence of God. Now most of us here, we feel the presence of God moving in our church services. We felt Him during our worship. We felt His Word penetrate us when the message is being preached. and maybe even changed a little bit because of that presence. But let me ask you something. Have you ever felt the terrible presence of God? What do I mean by that? It sounds like something you want to run from. And what I mean by the terrible presence is that it's a presence that is so overwhelming that you and your flesh almost can't even stand it. I've been in church services a few times like that. There have been times in history where God's presence has fallen in such a heavy way that even the most hardened unrepentant sinner were immediately converted without having a person preach to them. We see it even overseas now with ISIS. Jesus appearing before people there and being instantly converted. It happened in 1949 in Scotland on an island group called the Heberleys. A Presbyterian pastor named Duncan Campbell was preaching his heart out for years to the local villages And there was hardly any response to his ministry. He started to get cold. He started to get doubting God. But he still kept his nose to the grindstone, doing the work of the ministry, trying to get some people saved. One Sunday, a young man visited his church, and he actually responded to the salvation message and was down at the altar in the front of the church, weeping over his sin and asking God to forgive him and weeping over his lost family members that God would also save them. Pastor Campbell saw that and realized that he had gotten cold. He had gotten jaded about the work of the ministry. And he was stricken in his heart over his own coldness and realized that that young Christian, that young man, was closer to God right now than he was. He walked down off of his pulpit and asked that man to pray for him and the church. The young boy stood up and began to pray. He got three lines out of, the pr- of a prayer out of his mouth, and the manifest, terrible presence of God fell under that church. For the next several hours, the people of the church wailed, they worshipped, they interceded, they wept for the lost. As they continued to do it, that presence of God left the church, and it went into the surrounding community. The taverns emptied. People who were once used to stumbling around from intoxication now stumbled under the weighty presence of God. There was a dance at the local high school for young people that evening. And Duncan Campbell described it as the power of God entered that dance and the young people, over a hundred of them, fled from the dance as one's fleeing from a plague. And they ran to the church and were instantly converted. This event was called the Hebride Revival. It was one of the most covered news stories of that time and one of the most independently verifiable religious events in modern history. It was said that there wasn't a single person on the island that did not have a direct encounter with God. This last week I had my reappointment interview with our presbyter. As a district supervised church, I'm actually an appointed pastor. I wasn't voted on there. You guys are kind of stuck with me. But I do have to be reappointed every year. And so I was sitting down at my my interview this last week, and he asked me what I wanted for our church. And I told him, you know, I want us to grow. I want us to make an impact in the community. But as I was preparing for this message, that question popped again in my mind. I said, God, what do you, or John, what do you want for this church? I said, God, that is what I want for our church. I want the presence of God to be terrible, to be manifested in our church. That everyone that comes into these doors is changed under the power of God. You see, because it doesn't matter if I preach the best sermons ever that, you know, that Charles Wesley or, or, or Spurgeon are sitting in heaven listening going, wow, that's a good preacher. None of that matters. It doesn't matter if, if Jennifer and Tammy can lead worship better than Hillsong Church because not a soul will be moved without the presence of God in our midst. We can have the best of everything, but unless God's tangible presence is here, we're wasting our time. And what is true for this church is also true for us as individuals. You see, we can go through the motions of Christianity. We can attend every church service. We can give toward the work of the kingdom and even do some of the work of the kingdom. But unless you seek God on your own, unless I seek God on my own, unless you set up that special time and guard that place to meet with your Lord, it's a wasted effort. Because God wants intimacy with us. The scripture tells us that Moses spoke to God as a friend. You know, we sing songs like, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. But do we really mean it? Friendship means intimacy. We trust our friends with with things about us that we don't even tell, we would never tell a person on the street. The ultimate expression of friendship is seen in marriage marriage is a commitment that we lay down our lives for our spouses. And that's the power of that, that relationship and friendship. Is it any wonder why we, as a church, are called the bride of Christ? Because Jesus wants that same kind of relationship with you and with me. And we can have it. It's available to us. When we are deliberate with our prayer lives, when we guard that time, when we strive to have intimacy with Him. And that's when he will, we will hear His heart. And that needs to be our goal. To have intimacy with God. To enter into His very throne room. To hear His heart. And to experience Him in all of His fullness. When we're deliberate about setting a time and place to meet with God, when we guard that time above all else, and we begin to know intimacy with God, it will be recognized. Tammy, can you and Jennifer come back up, please? The Bible record says that people would see Moses head toward the tent and stand in the doorway of their tent and worship God. There's something fascinating and true about intimacy with God. It spreads. It spreads. Just like it did in Heberly Island where... The presence of God just left the church and hit the entire community. The effective, fervent life of prayer is contagious to others. People will begin to notice that about us if we commit to that kind of prayer life. They will grow hungry for what you have. Jesus himself said, where I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And that is how we lift up Jesus in our lives. It's through that kind of prayer life that seeks intimacy with Him.